Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. So also, if you fail at this, this given mission, then what, your life is wasted? Your life is a failure? Well, no, you just change your mind or you evolve or you, you change the, the nature of your interests. Three, two, one. My name is Esprit Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create the Women in Tech show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. Hello, everybody. I'm Ulvia Giafferle, a data scientist in Italy. Although I'm living in Rome, originally I am from Azerbaijan. While thinking about how long it took for me to be a tech woman in the technology world, I felt the responsibility and desire to help other women as much as I can. Therefore, I developed the TechDevop platform to support others who want to achieve in technology. Because I believe women have ability to do great things. For us, sharing, helping, developing as one is the most important value. What I would like to emphasize is just do not afraid to fail, do not limit yourself with little success. Think bigger, learn, fail, repeat, experience, and reach the inaccessible. No matter how hard the challenge is, go for it. If not now, then when? LinkedIn presents. Hi, this is Danielle Farage, and welcome back to the Women in Tech podcast. I am, of course, guest hosting, thanks to Esprit. And today, my guest is very special to, I think, both me and Esprit as well. Um, she was someone who I met through Esprit's podcast bet cohort, which was basically everything you need to know about podcasting in a cohort style environment. And I met this guest um, through that and we had a really interesting connection, which was we both spent some time in Paris and I got to meet her in person, which was probably one of the first meetups, probably maybe the first person I met in Paris in person when I was visiting for work. And she's very unique. She is a really deep thinker. She is someone who pushes me and challenges me to think harder about things, think more critically, think about the environment, and is honest, has honestly become a, a friend tour of mine, as I like to say. And I really wanted to have her on because besides her background and, and all of the incredible work she does with startups and accelerators and, and just being an incredible mentor to a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs, I wanted to have her on because I think that what she brings in her in her background as an immigrant and 
her unique perspective is one that we honestly all need to hear. So I hope everyone's ready. This is going to be a very interesting ride <laughs> and it will be a very free flowing conversation. I'm very excited. I think she has a lot to say. So with that, let me introduce Amin. Welcome to the Women in Tech podcast. I honestly, I really don't know what to say after such an introduction. And I think I can die tonight. Thank you. <laughs> how can I how can I live to this description? I mean, uh, I I know I know you're you're super positive and kind, but that's too much, really, too much. Let us know what is your motivation for being here today. Um. So first, thank you, Daniel, for bringing me on to this um, this great show. Um, it means a lot to me, and the reason why I basically jumped at the at the opportunity is that I really want to support you. Nothing more in terms of agenda, nothing more in terms of um, what can this bring to me, what does it mean, or anything. And support is pre in her general um, endeavors of trying to elevate women uh, in general and women tech in particular and women in Gen Z. And you are um, one of the, the few um, representatives of, of, uh, of this generation which, which, who, who has the nerve and the, and the bravery to speak up. So just for that, it's just uh, my small contribution to support you and, um, and hopefully to, um, uh, to allow for some, some spark and some, some ideas that otherwise wouldn't have necessarily um, have existed on this show. Uh, because as you mentioned, I'm an immigrant, but not, not in the US. I'm, I'm based in France. I was born in Algeria. I've been working in Europe and the U.S. and uh, a bit of Africa as well. And there are many concepts, there are many ideas which I hear uh, discussed in the U.S. in the um, domestic um, um, realm or domestic um, geography, but in other parts of the world are very different because we're equipped culturally and intellectually a bit differently. So um, I'm sure it's going to be um, a fruitful conversation. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> and also because I love to chat with you. Can you believe that we only had three conversations in our lives? Only three? Can you believe that? Like three long ones, only three? It's, it's funny how, you know, you have, you have this capacity to open up um, and present yourself uh, as, as imperfect as you are, as, as curious as you are, and at the same time be so curious about other people's perspectives and points of views. So three long conversations only. And, and you know, I think to sort of build on that point or even to take it back a little bit, we from a very young age, especially women, you know, we're taught that we need to fit into this box, right? We need to be pretty and dainty and we need to not talk as much and we need to, you know, fit other people's expectations of, of what we should be. And in the last episode, 
I recorded with Jessica Spivak-Lowenstein. I felt we had a really interesting conversation about her being told, you know, she's a woman in VC, that she was too nice by a former boss. And in other words, I like to think of this as too much herself. And in order to get to that, even this deep, deeper sort of lane of thinking with someone else and to engage in that type of conversation, you have to feel really secure and with yourself, A, but also curious, which is, I think, what that person who told her that maybe was lacking. And so I'm I'm curious to ask you, you know, if you had been in that situation, which I don't know, maybe you have where someone has told you you're too much, you're too this, too that, how would you have handled that situation or how did you handle that situation in the past? I've been told I've been told many, many, many times in my in my career that I was too much or not enough. Many times. Too aggressive, too ambitious, too feminine, too masculine. Um, <laughs> honestly, yeah. Um, how did how did I react? Um, I I think you didn't mention it. I'm 45 years old, and at the beginning of my professional career, I was um, let's say fil- filterless. <laughs> so not impolite, but filterless. So if something was annoying or if someone would tell me, oh, you're too whatever, I would react like in that very second in in a very um, determined way. Let's put it this way. <laughs> and, I would hold, and I would hold my ground and I would hold my ground, which obviously made me um, make made many mistakes. Because sometimes maybe it was just the person trying to tell me something, maybe in an awkward way, you know, not exactly with the the, the right level of um, um, human intelligence and and relationships, but that's fine. I should have known better. So in the second part of my career, I opened up a little bit more to this kind of, um, for me, it's a criticism. It's not a feedback and I'm very cautious about using feedback for any judgment that is uh, placed on you because feedback is just an information, right? It's a signal. It's, it's just like um, neurologically speaking. It's a nerve that you push. Okay, there's a signal. What should I do with it? But it, in itself, it doesn't mean either positive or negative. It's information to digest. Um, when you have someone telling you something not about the work you do or something that is um, objectively um, explainable, it's difficult to for me to consider that it's, it's anything else but judgment and criticism. Um, and I know it's super popular to say, hey, no judgment there, but I know. <laughs> but it's not because you say it that it's not the case. <laughs> You know, it's like, oh, I'm not racist, but, uh, well, the problem is in the but. <laughs> just stop right there. You're not racist. Good. So but literally, just it, just, it just discounts what you're saying. Like, But is the thing that you exactly. say if you are 
if you want to erase what you said before. Yes, it's an opposition. Absolutely. Yeah. In the second part of my career, I opened up a little bit more to this type of criticism because I felt that I was trying to serve a higher purpose and I had um, business ambitions, which were way more important than I used to have. And I thought really tactically, it was better for me to understand what the person was trying to say, even though I didn't, you know, I, I didn't agree. That's one thing. But then it was also a way for me to filter out people who um, judged, judged me in a way which wasn't um, fair or wasn't um, okay with me. So if people sometimes tell me, oh, you, you have too much energy, oh, you're too, you're too wild or you're too idealistic, you're too, you're too naive, you know, Some, sometimes people tell me that you're too, na you're really too naive just because I think that altruism is not a, a, a silly word, that empathy is not a silly word. And not being naive, sometimes it's very hard and it takes a lot of self-reflection to feel empathy for someone you have all the reasons to loathe and despise. So it's nothing but being naive. And responding to that, it's a way for me to filter them, to filter them out. So sometimes I smile um, in terms of reactions. Sometimes I say, oh, but um, what makes you say so? And um, why is it a problem? Oh, you think so? Um, <laughs> X and Y and Z uh, were okay with that, especially when you're an investor or where, when you work with entrepreneurs. There's a very fine thing, which is called a very fragile thing, which is called trust and faith, really, faith in each other. And... If someone is too kind, too kind means that there is a normality, that there is a, a level that you should conform to. And below that level, maybe it's acceptable because it's kind of okay to have your ego in front of everybody. But if you're too kind, oh, that's a problem. Well, maybe she's a decent human being and she's, she's building trust earlier Uh, better at a higher speed than the than your average VC, and therefore she manages to have a sense or an opinion on these deals in a in a better way, or negotiate better terms, or have less um, antagonizing discussions. In in a situation where you know in early stage deals, pretty much everything is uncertain. Everything's risky. Even the person in front of you is a risk by itself, by herself or by his, himself. Maybe, um, you know, one day he, he will do a burnout and he will get out of his bed or her bed. Maybe he will go crazy with his partner and won't come back anymore. I mean, everything is a risk. So building up, building up trust to make sure and confidence and mutual confidence to make sure that even if Not everything is written down in the terms, in the contracts, but that you're going to behave in good faith and that you, you intentionally mean well to each other. Maybe that's seen as too kind, but honestly, this type of conversation or this type of relationship 
to, in my experience, can can outperform the craziest contracts. Because in fact, in these types of situations, when things go a bit wild, it's better to be kind and, and understanding to find a way out of a messy situation before calling lawyers. So, yeah, sometimes it can be... I don't want to use the word competitive advantage because that would put us in a whole other discussion on we should compete to each other and against each other, etc. And it's not my perspective on things. But um, <laughs> thank you for this small question and this long answer, Iman. <laughs> well, that's that's why I have you on. It's to to share your vast perspectives. Um, I you know I think that something really interesting that you're hitting on without actually saying the word is professionalism and this idea of you know fitting into a certain box in the context of the professional world is one that i want to unpack a little bit because recently i also i saw you know simon sinek talking about Gen Z and my generation and saying, you know, they're emotionally unprofessional. What does that mean, right? The idea of emotional unprofessionalism, as I understood it, was he was selling it as, oh, you know, they're bringing their problems to work. They're saying that they're too burnt out to work eight hours or they can't handle a, a you know a, a a workload or a deadline because there's too much happening in their life and you know i think the the thing that is there's so many things that are different about this generation and and how we've come into the workforce even even just in how we've come in right i graduated and the pandemic was my graduation gift and then I went into the, you know, my professional career. And so this idea, and, and then I think that during the pandemic, when you had people's homes and you saw into people's homes for the first time and they couldn't hide their lives, right? That sort of broke down this wall that existed since professionalism was a thing. Because never before were you seeing into each other's houses on the reg, on the every single day. So in my eyes, I've never had professionalism. That's, that's like an idea to me that should be left in 2019. But to someone who has spent their entire careers with this professional facade of you know, splitting their work selves from their personal selves at home. That's been their entire career. So how do you, you know, how do you bridge the gap, right? So I guess my question for you is like, what do you think of this idea of professionalism? And, and obviously, you know, you just said that you think that if people are themselves and, and you allow them to, to to lean into that it could be a competitive advantage if we were going to if we we're going to label it that way and I, and i agree i think i i definitely agree with that i think it 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 is a competitive advantage in the world yeah, at least you don't like time building relationships with people who 
whom you can't trust. I mean, you know, there are many other options in life. So for me, it's a way to save time. But yeah, um, honestly, there is so much to say. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know where to start. Um, I, I don't understand this 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 emotionally unprofessional. Is that the expression that he said? And emotionally yeah. unprofessional. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Is it unprofessionally emotional? Because maybe that's what he meant. Owning to your owning your emotions, owning the fact that you're you're not a robot. Because emotionally unprofessional, that would mean that you're unprofessional um, at a, at a level which is the level of your emotions, but your emotions never pretended to be emotional. Otherwise, it would mean that in previous years, which it never was, it never was. I mean, and, and people would lie to you um, that they pretended to be happy or to be sad or to be whatever for professional reasons. You can be polite. You can pretend to have fun because you're with your boss at a dinner with clients and whatever. But that's a percentage of people who did that. But other people, I am one of those, uh, if I was bored, I would say so. Or I would make a joke and show that I'm bored. <laughs> Which, again, makes us feel more human. I mean, if you're in, in, a, in a discussion with a business partner or with a, a colleague and you obviously see that this person has something wrong i mean and you can't really know what's going on the the most sensible i mean rational things to do and that's a professional thing to do is to say hey are you okay is it a good time for you do you want to postpone is that being emotionally unprofessional well <laughs> i don't know it's 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 weird you know this whole myth of managing your emotions and repressing them and being uh, ashamed of feeling stuff. Uh, the first time I, 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 I cried at work, I was, it was during my first job. It was my first uh, engagement. And at the last, uh, the last week, I had a, a feedback session and my two um, engagement managers uh, gave me feedback which I felt was super unfair, you know, whatever. It was true, it was wrong, whatever. I felt it was unfair. But um, I, I was so shocked by the fact that they told me all these things, which to me were totally untrue and unfair, and that it hurt my professionalism, like the level, my standard of things that I do when I'm at work, let's call it this way, professionalism, that I started crying. And they thought I was totally overwhelmed and, you know, on my knees when in fact I was crying with rage. I was furious and I was so mad that I could, that my body could do nothing but cry. And that's the first time it happened. And at least in that job, it was the last. And then I promised to myself, this will never happen again. So even if I'm shouting or if I'm saying bad stuff while crying, I will not shut up. 
ever. Is it unprofessional to have to feel emotions whilst you're at work? Uh, well, we've been humans uh, since the beginning of time, so <laughs> it's it's weird. It's weird. I don't know. It's weird. It's 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 even on Dilbert. Even on Dilbert, they had emotions. So if the point of this discussion is to go back to Dilbert times, <laughs> you know this cartoon when they fun they make jokes about uh, standard um, corporate America way of life and you see we would say corporate america way of life so we're living in it honestly yeah it doesn't make any sense it's a super siloed way of considering people and of considering business um my best ideas and that's pretty much um um demonstrated by 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 science i'm i'm fascinated with, with so so much neuroscience stuff at the moment but it's basically when you're outside or when you're in your shower or when you're at the gym but not at work <laughs> when you're doing something else so you're going to to tell to your brain hey shut up and come back tomorrow at nine you're not going to do that are you why should it be only on one side? Yeah, no, I could go on and on. But the silo perspective on work and on people is a very dangerous one. Because again, who is in, who has the authority to decide what should remain in the silo and what should stick out? And so what's the norm? And what do we do with the people who are outside the norm, who don't want to conform? What do we do? And for some people, um, being super lively and open about their emotions is viewed positively in the workplace. And in some other companies, it's, it's viewed negatively. So if you say it's emotionally, it's uh, emotions are, um, let's say, um, uh, a critical parameter in Gen Z's uh, relationship to work, yes, good for them. <laughs> maybe they'll take less antidepressants you know good for them <laughs> well actually this brings up a really interesting point that that you know i didn't prep a question about this but i think that a, a lot of founders who do have mental health challenges and are going to raise money tend to be less open about what's happening actually behind the scenes of their brain of of you know and i think I'll, it's it's sort of this growing concern and i think it's one that my generation will have to if we haven't already have to really confront which is a lot of founders are being asked to share their lives on social media right for the health of the business to grow the business to get the you know face of the business out there and that same pressure that the founders feel contrasts with or conflicts with their mental health. But there also could be a consequence of if you're sharing the fact that let's say, you know, you're bipolar and you're starting a startup for literally like to help other people who are bipolar. Maybe that it would be a, a great 
you know, it would be, it would be so aligned. There would be, you know, a clear definition of how the founder story relates to the mission of the company. And that would be, you know, great for the company to, to publicize. At, on the other side, this same founder is trying to raise money and investors who don't understand or who haven't themselves been there might think, oh, well, he's a flight risk or she's a flight risk. And so what do you do? And I, I think that the reason why I'm asking you this is because as we sort of think about like professionalism, and obviously you work with a lot of startups and a lot of founders and feel free to like sort of go into that a little bit and like the work that you you've done and that you're doing but how how might that you know how might someone sort of deal with that challenge i think you you raised a fair point about the whole pressure that is put on entrepreneurs and, and founders uh and even sometimes found, founding teams so not only the founder or the, the co-founders, but also the, the the first five or ten people as if they own the thing, like it's their own story. Um, so there's a whole pressure around the fact that they should <sighs> declare their big mission in life, be 100% aligned with everything that this company serves, uh, drink and breathe and sleep on their customer base and their customer needs and and really i understand where this comes from and and you know it evolved uh, over the last five years and it wasn't so present until now but again something that could be a good idea for some founders because it nurtures them because some founders they're evangelists they want in the sense that they want to push a message. They want to push a vision. And they're okay with the fact that they're going to expose themselves and their own story with the, okay, I've been through this. I struggle with that. I'm, I didn't find a solution. This is what I built. Okay. This is the, 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 the typical, the archetypical um, story of the founder who built um, a solution for whatever, mental health issues or any, any type of issue. And, uh, and many women founders have built great businesses just like that because they didn't find the solution to a problem which was a taboo <laughs> or considered as not important enough by the traditional VC market or VC founders. So again, it can be great. But if it gives you anemia or if you're health dying every time you have to share your story or you have to share or you have to, you feel like you need to overshare, I think then it becomes disingenuous, like it's a lie or it's fabricated. Um, and I think that's a problem because it's not sustainable. It harms the founder or the founders in their very fragile balance. And you know that, Danielle, sometimes in a day you can go up and down and up and down because there are so many, there's so much commitment and passion and you want to make it work or you love your clients or you love your product, you love your teams, you really, really, really do so much to make it work that just a little tiny, bitsy little bad news can put you down and the middle laughter you up again. 
So just that, not even exposing any of that story, just feeling that and living it because it's actually living it with your hormones and, and your cortisol going up to the roof and then, and the adrenaline coming back. And it's, it's, we're hormonal messes, right? No wonder there are so much mental health issues. <laughs> so if it's, if it's, a way for people again to push their message because they want to because they it makes me it makes them feel more alive yes go for it and it would then be um a way to compensate for the bad moments probably because they will have the support of their community of their followers and i don't know their audience their clients their community but even if you have the best product and each time you publish a story about whatever your dog or whatever you did last weekend and you had a, an epiphany on uh, something for your clients and then you publish a photo or picture of yourself uh, on your, I don't know, Sunday, Sunday walk and it's not bringing you any joy, any comfort, any excitement, any, any positive energy, then it's just a bad PR stunt. And I think we should collectively stop consuming this type of things, um, this type of content. Um, we should just stop. Because sometimes you really feel like this person, she had to drag herself to do that post. And you know, because you know the backstory. So when in the middle of all of this, he or she is raising money, um, that's another layer of destabilization and doubts. Uh, you keep on being uh, bombarded with uh, unsolicited feedback, <laughs> which not which is not always meaningful or or <laughs> worth listening, to be honest. And it, and it, and destabilizing for your 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 identity as a as a founder, your professionalism. Like, oh my god, this person she hated the the business or she hated the presentation. AKA she hated me, AKA I'm the worst person on the planet, AKA I should quit. And when you haven't slept so much, when your hormones keep uh, going up and down, uh, when you're running out of cash, how can you stay cool? And if on top of that, you expose yourself. So yeah, there's a lot of um, uh, mythology around the founder journey. I think the, the, the benefit of, of telling a story, whether that's your own story or it's, you know, it's a, it's a personal story or it's a experience story, like whatever kind of story it is, the benefit of that and, and of sort of, you know, dispersing it amongst your team and having your whole team tell that story, whether it's on online or it's in meetings, it's, uniformity helps people it gives people confidence that you know what you're talking about and and that you can solve their problems when we spoke in paris there was a moment when you called me out for editing myself which i appreciate because i love being called out and given feedback i think i i think i used what did i say but or something yeah I think I used but instead of instead of using and and I I corrected myself I said 
I said, I went back and I said, and so when, when you said, you said something and you're like, see what you just did there, you edited yourself in real time. But realistically, it's important for us to communicate in the ways that, that we naturally do because, because that way people can really understand what we're trying to get across or, or the truest or most authentic, you know, way of communicating what we mean. And you, you mentioned using accessible, using accessible language. You need to give people the tools to understand you. You need to give them the way to decipher you, you know? And one of the reasons why we connected, I think, is that we shared similar interests in some topics. Um, and so many on many things, I didn't I never had the impression that I needed to explain everything from A to Z. And so did you, I think. So we had a basis on ground that we could build on, and that's why it felt so natural. For people who are a bit further away, and it's important, to, I think, to discuss with people who are further away, yeah, we need to give them the keys. That's why something sometimes, and for me, it's not editing, it's really deciphering or communicating explicitly explicitly by reducing the uh, yeah the sublines but I think when I when you say I called you out it was more about the whole uh, self-branding stuff which um, which comes back to uh, uh, sharing on social media and to me you're so much more you're so much more you have so much more to experiment and to explore and to uh, the whole finding your niche and devising your mission in life. When you, I mean, I don't have a clue what's my mission in life other than just living. Otherwise, we just have savior complexes. Stop, stop this. So also, if you fail at this, this given mission, then what? Your life is wasted? Your life is a failure? Well, no, you just change your mind or you evolve, or you you change the, the nature of your interests. I spent uh, many years of my life advocating for women, women in the workplace, women in business, women in finance, women in investment, women in money. Yeah, and now I'm going full force, like full force, big time. Yes, on that topic, but mostly on all things sustainability, because time is running out, and I'm not... I don't feel I'm betraying any sort of mission because I didn't have any mission in the first place. My business had, but not me. So I'm, I think that anything, any sort of practical, supposedly good tip or practical tip to, to market oneself um, is a bit of a, a prison in a way. Because the things are evolving so fast the world is complex. It's a complex thing to, to grasp. And maybe six months ago, you understood future of work in this way, like in parallel lines. And now within future of work, you're super excited about this vertical lines and more specifically this line. 
And after exploring it for six months, you decide, no, you know what? It's more mental health. Okay, good enough. And you're absolutely free to do so. And so the whole marketing playbook of uh, branding ourselves as persons, I think it's um, uh, it dries out creativity and curiosity. And that's a problem. That's a good point. I think that's one that probably resonates with a lot of listeners because especially if you're doing the whole social media thing, I've heard personally from a, a lot of creators, a lot of community builders, like trying to build my brand, but I also am interested in this other thing. And I think we're so, because, you know, we ourselves put like to put people in boxes just from a, you know, biological standpoint of like what humanity naturally does. Then we think, oh, we need to fit into that box rather than doing the thing and letting those people who it resonates with find us. I want to um, give you, you know, the opportunity to talk a little bit more about your work in sustainability um, because I, I it it is definitely important. <laughs> There's no question about that. Um, and you know, I I want to hear a little bit about sort of for this audience specifically. You know, what what do you want these founders, these women in tech, to to know? about sustainability, about the the change that they themselves can affect? Or if it's not, if, if that's not a possibility, what, what can they do, you know, amongst the women founder communities or the women in tech podcast community? What like what if what changes might they be able to affect? I think that the one investment in terms of attention, um, the one investment that the founders who are listening can do um, is to educate themselves around the effects of the many, many, many um, layers that come with the concept of climate change, um, which come with biodiversity loss, which come with um, difficulties in access to clean water, to water, um, and all these different layers and understanding how their business, not as a philanthropic uh, endeavor on the side, but really in the business model, how can their business um, be part of a solution or reduce the harm? So, for example, when you have, and, and, and no shade here huh, in, in my mouth, but when you have people telling you that they're super impactful uh, because they have great uh, work-life balance policies and they're super cool with women in the workplace and whatever. You're like, okay, cool, but what do you do? Well, what's your business? Yeah, you're telling me good stuff, but what's what do you do? And the company does an app or an API to improve or to increase um, the amount of checkout that people will buy online, it just increases consumerism. It just increases the, the stuff that we own and it just makes the problem even worse. So, but if you have an app or an API like that, how can, for example, you would consider uh, pivoting it or opening it in a different way 
to organizations who want to raise money for NGOs or for women who are founders in local communities who don't have access to um, traditional sources of financing to make it easier for them, for their business, for their patrons to not only buy from them, so locally, so that the money stays on on, on the, the territory, but also, for instance, to you know open patrons and stuff like that to make it easier for them. Why? Because these businesses will be or could be part of the solution. So you can be a solution enabler, even if you're not a solution yourself. But looking at the big picture and not thinking, oh, you know, I'm in tech, so I don't have much impact. I don't have much negative impact. You know, I have a, a little bit of a, of a um, space somewhere in the, uh, in the servers of Amazon or whatever. And that's it, you know, and we treat our employees well and it's cool. And yeah, but can we think a minute about what your business actually do? What your business actually does? And um, and see if you're an activist for climate and equity and and not only that, but also um, for fair or just adaptation, because adaptation is a super massive topic that is absolutely invisible in most of the tech conversations when in fact it's fascinating it's it's a booming booming land of opportunities how do you uh, cool a building without traditional ac how do you do that without putting the building down and rebuilding it how do you do that in low in a low tech way for in an affordable way how can you deploy it not in 5 or 10 years but in 2 years how can you do that? And these are super interesting challenges. And that's where we need all the human creativity. And that's where we need all the, the, the how do you call it? The, um, the ability to, the resourcefulness, the ability to do a lot with not so much. The resourcefulness of women in tech, that's what we need. Clearly, in, in, in sustainability and particularly in adaptation. So, yeah, <laughs> and also because probably you'll, it'll be easier for you to get clients because there are so many people looking for solutions like that, B2B or B2C or B2G for governments. <laughs> and, um, yeah. I was at a conference um, a couple of weeks ago now. And, I mean, I think the there might be a law passing or something around companies having an, like an ESG initiative? IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, IRA in the US. Yes, it's a massive, massive checkbook opened for businesses in the US when it comes to sustainability, massive checkbook, IRA. And it's, it's a client opportunity, like having proper customer. So, um, um, in a non-dilutive way, because there are subsidies also, but in a non-dilutive way, and it's always cool to not be diluted too much. Um, so they can check. Um, there are many summaries online on the, ma the main sectors or um, subsectors that are going to be positively affected by this, um, this uh, act. 
But again, um, once you identify which type of sector, which type of subsector would, would be a fit for you, it's coming back to what your business does and see how you can either pivot and make it more palatable for the, the, the customers, potential customers to this business, to this um, business, which going to be, which is going to be subsidized by the, the this act, or um, uh, find a way to market it to the people who are going to benefit from these credits. Because basically, for example, if you build sustainable roads, if you are you are not going tomorrow to start building sustainable roads, but if you build services or products for companies in the road industry, for example, in the road construction, for example, um, I don't know, training for frontline workers in the road construction industry, uh, working on health and safety for these people, and you're super specialized, well, you will definitely benefit on a second level, if you like. But again, it takes a moment to think about what is your value proposition? What is the impact? As in, what is the big problem that you either solve or enable other solutions to solve, other companies to solve? Because obviously you can't build green green roads or more, more sustainable roads if um, you treat your um, your employees like hell and um, <laughs> and you don't train them and and they they're yeah they're paid badly and, and not in a fair way. So any any sort of conversation that you could have either with your board or with a group of other founders who could bounce back ideas. And you know you can do a, a fun night with a with a juices and and and, and games and and for an hour or two, um, you know come come up with the, with your explanation of what your business model is, what you could reasonably do in the near future, and how you can transition from A to B, and if you need investment, how can you find it, and who is the next person you can talk to to make it happen. And if you do that, do it with five or six co-founders of other companies who are in the same situation, I mean, wonders can happen. Wonders can happen because we're so much better. In my experience, we're so much better as taking uh, a smart perspective on other other people's businesses when you're a founder than taking a perspective on yours. So, I do want to round out the conversation with a speed round of questions. What is the last hard question you asked yourself? Mm, did you sleep enough? Which is a hard question because I never sleep enough and I know I should. And it brings a whole series of consequences in my balance, in my health, in my general mood. If the quality of my sleep isn't there, immediately, of course, this hard question comes with an answer, which is no. And then it means that I need to make decisions and sacrifices on things which I enjoy uh, to sleep more. So, yeah, that's a hard question for me. <laughs> what is your best recent purchase? Yeah. Am I, am I allowed to make the comment that I did offline or? <laughs> You're allowed to say whatever you want. <laughs> on this want. question? <laughs> okay. Um, I was a bit... Um, surprised by this question when I read it because um, I don't define myself as a consumer and I think we should when we talk to women in general 
we should try and separate as often as possible the whole being a consumer, being a spender, being a shopping addict to our identities as women because we've been inflicted with that by all sorts of forces uh, for too long. And because of the sustainability questions that we've raised and the overspending and over stuff and over and the excessive part of material part in their in our lives, uh, there are so many people who feel so many women who feel um, void when in fact everything around them is filled. So and because I experienced it and uh, I. Uh, I indulged to shopping for a long time before understanding what was behind. I, uh, yeah, I was a bit surprised. But I'm going to tell you what was the most meaningful and best uh, way I spent my money, uh, which is uh, taking a, a subscription at the gym, at a swimming pool. And it's been great for my health. I mean, if you have any books on, for, for starters, you know, the environment and sustainability... That you, or or you mentioned that you're reading a lot on neuroscience. So I'm curious to hear a little bit about what are the books that you're reading now. Yeah, yeah. So there's this podcast uh, in English that I really enjoy um, by Professor or Doctor. I don't know. I guess it's Doctor Andrew Huberman from Huberman Lab, um, which is fascinating. Uh, in, in, in many levels. Uh, otherwise, I think uh, when it comes to emancipation and taking uh, some distance from what, um, what is imposed on us, I think we should uh, uh, listen to or read some stuff on Marx. And I have a podcast episode which is absolutely not boring, absolutely not theoretical, very interesting um, on... Um, uh, on a podcast by a guy who's a Russian and he's a professor, the Lex Friedman podcast, Lex Friedman podcast. And it's an episode with a professor who's been, who's been working on um, and, and, and teaching Marxism for a long time. Uh, he's an American. And Honestly, it's the first time I heard someone in the U.S. talk about Marxism. Otherwise, you know, I, I listen to people in France or in Europe and they have different ways of approaching it, of course. And, you know, um, the reason why I think about it is because I've been interested in Web3 last year, understanding what was going on, all this owning owning your internet, all the creator economy stuff where you own your rights, your own, what, what, what's this thing with owning? Why, why should we own whatever thing that is called capital or whatever? Why should we own it? Why don't we use it? And why is it a way for us to get, to, to feel more free? And that's how I started reading on Marx because um, many players in the Web3 space mention marks i'm like oh interesting okay so yeah i i deeply recommend lex friedman's podcast on not the whole podcast but on that particular episode because on for example on sustainability i just listened to it i think it was last week uh <laughs> there were um, 
yeah, there were two gentlemen invited and having a very techno-optimistic view on climate change. And uh, it rarely benefits to uh, the most vulnerable people to believe that tech will solve it all because it won't, just like finance would solve it all. And um, unfortunately, on a global scale, um, women are um, some of the people who will be most affected by the consequences of climate change. So that's why I mentioned adaptation, because at the end of the day, uh, women with whatever income they get or they manage to earn, they will make sure or will do their utmost to uh, preserve their families and their communities, as in people living with them in their villages and their towns and their quarters. And um, that's why we need to invest in them. And that's why we need to listen to them when they want to build solutions to live better. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today. Hopefully this was an enlightening conversation for all of you as well. Um, I definitely, oh, as always, I'm learning a lot from Amin, but tell everyone how they can find you and, and maybe read your content. <laughs> um, on LinkedIn is the easier way to, um, to get in contact with me and, uh, uh, if you just want to read, just use the follow button. And otherwise, you can send me an invite telling me, hey, I heard you with uh, Daniel's podcast and I have a question or two. And of course, I would be happy to chat. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and Iman on the Women in Tech podcast. To connect with more incredible women just like her who are in tech around the world, head to womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. Make sure to say hi on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And if you want to connect with Iman on your own, she does have a booking link, a link in bio in her LinkedIn. So make sure to go there, Iman Maharzi. She's amazing. And I will see you soon. Bye. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.